that and your coffee didn't wake you up, I don't know what will. That's just joy invoking. Good morning to you all. Thanks for bringing the church into uh, this space, whether you're here with us in this auditorium right now or engaging via the live stream. Um, If we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church, the guy who uh, more often than not gets the, the privilege, the responsibility, the joy of preaching God's word, and that is no different this morning. And so uh, go ahead and invite you, if you have a Bible, to open up to Luke chapter one. We're gonna be in verses 39 through 55 this morning, uh, a little bit shorter passage than many of the passages that we will engage along the way in Luke's gospel account, uh, and, and yet... Uh, there's, there's a lot of deep, rich theology that, that we will come to see in, in these moments that we have together this morning. Uh, let, me, let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll jump in, and we'll get after it this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do what some of us perhaps might consider to be a miracle this morning, which is to awaken our hearts one more time to the all familiar yet wondrous story of Christmas. Holy Spirit, we not only invite you to do that, but we plead with you to do that, that that we might not walk out of this space uh, without a a song on our hearts, Lord, Um, but rather like Mary, that we would walk out uh, proclaiming, singing, and that as we'll see before this uh, time together is over this morning, that that is not just uh, your joy that is at stake in that, but, or excuse me, your glory that's at stake in that, but, but our joy, that those two are intertwined. And so God, for your glory and our joy, would you do that this morning? Would you attend the preaching of your word in power? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this morning, we're gonna, we're gonna take a look at a Christmas carol, essentially, and, and by that, I don't mean uh, the uh, famous and endearing classic Charles Dickens tale with the ghosts of past, present, and future, but rather the, the song sung by Mary, the mother of Jesus, one of the most God-glorifying songs in, in all the Bible, Mary's song of praise, uh, a song that's come to be known and titled The Magnificat. Uh, I, was, I was struck uh, yesterday and I've noticed this in Christmas's past, but uh, it just continues to prove itself true. We were, we were watching something on uh, one of the streaming apps, uh, holiday celebration uh, at one of the Disney theme parks. And, and over the course of, of about an hour's time, we realized that uh, you can't escape singing of Jesus Christ, the Savior and King in the hope of fallen humanity, no matter where you go during the Christmas season, you'll hear it when you walk into a Target. You'll, it doesn't matter where you go. You can't escape these songs. And we get to dive into one of the earliest Christmas carols this morning. It's, it's actually one of the, the first, it's the first of four uh, Christmas hymns included in the earliest chapters of Luke's gospel account. The other three being the song of Zechariah as you close out chapter one, the, the song of the angels, uh, in the field with the shepherds in chapter two, verse 14. And then you have the, the song of Simeon in chapter two, verses 29 through 32. So that uh, if you're into Christmas carols, Luke's got you covered big time. He, he wants us to, to see that the story of Christmas is not simply a story to tell, but a story to sing and with grateful hearts. If you pick up the story in verse 39, Luke tells us, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. 
right? Mary received word going back to last week through the angel Gabriel that Elizabeth, her cousin, was to bear a son, the one who would someday herald the coming Messiah. And so she journeys to see her cousin and, and witness this incredible miracle, a, a roughly 80 to 100 mile trek from Nazareth to the Jerusalem countryside, both women now carrying the children that they'll soon bring into the world. Elizabeth now six months into her pregnancy, John the Baptist resting in her once barren womb, the coming Messiah now resting in the, the virgin womb of Mary herself, having received the promise of bearing the very son of God. Upon arrival, Luke tells us that, that the unborn Jesus receives a proper messianic welcome as John, the unborn fetus, mind you, leaps for joy in his mother's womb, which is really the, the same thing, is it not, that happens to anyone when they, when they truly recognize that Jesus is the promised savior and king, joy. In John's case, it's his first prophetic act as the forerunner called to herald the coming of the Messiah, here preparing the way of the Lord before he's even able to speak a word, announcing Jesus's presence. In the words of one commentator, John the Baptist was the only child ever to use a womb for a pulpit. Here you, you have the two covenants coming together under one roof, creating this spark of joy. You have John, the greatest prophet of the old covenant, and Jesus, the Lord of the new covenant. It's an amazing moment in scripture, in redemptive history. And Luke goes on to tell us at the end of verse 41, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the, the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Right, long before Peter's famous confession of Jesus as the Christ, we have Elizabeth's confession of Jesus as Lord. Before he's ever even born, the spirit of God having revealed to her the identity of the child in her cousin Mary's womb. And she counts herself blessed to be a part of this incredibly holy moment in the presence of the coming Messiah. I mean, talk about humility. Uh, how frustrated do we oftentimes get when, when we bring good news to the table and someone else's good news trumps our good news? Right here, you have Elizabeth's own pregnancy, which had been the focal point of excitement and joy after all those years of barrenness, right? And yet, in this moment, she sets aside her own good news and without hesitation, praises God for what he's done for Mary, declaring Mary too, alongside of her, to be blessed for her trust in God's promises and even more so for the privilege of bearing the Messiah. When you read verse 45, You've gotta wonder if Zechariah was within earshot. As Elizabeth declares to Mary, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Zechariah, her very own husband, didn't believe. You, you gotta wonder if he's sitting in the next room, perhaps even sharing this very space, hearing the loud shouts of praise in the wake of Mary's belief and trust in God, unable to join in with those shouts of praise for several more months himself, still silenced in the wake of his own unbelief. But lest we think that, that it was all sorrow and grief for Zechariah, Imagine the gratitude and joy he must have felt for God's provision of a savior in the womb of Mary. 
I mean, if you think about it, the, the son in his wife's womb would rescue him from fatherlessness. The son in Mary's womb would rescue him from sin and death. I mean, make no mistake about it, in the, in the contrasting responses of, of Zechariah and Mary, Luke for sure intends for the reader to wrestle with how he or she will respond to Jesus. Will it be in unbelief, silence when there might otherwise be shouts of joy like Zechariah? Or will it be in trusting him as savior and rejoicing in him as Lord, as a participant in those celebratory shouts of praise like Mary and Elizabeth? I mean, Luke surely wants us to wrestle with these things. After all, this is, again, to, to quote one of the commentators on Luke's gospel account, this is the gospel of knowing for sure. Luke wants us to believe. He wants us to, to trust God's word, to take God at his word, to trust in his promises and the fulfillment of those promises ultimately in Jesus Christ. He wants us to go and tell the world with the unmuted voice that God's given us that our God is a wonder-working God, bringing forth life from the most barren of places. That's what God does. But Luke also, in this writing, revealing to us the wondrous grace of God as Zechariah shares intimate space with the one who would go on to die for his unbelief. Think about that. Luke invites us into this incredibly holy moment that we might see a savior who's greater than our sins, a savior worthy of our leaping. As John shows us from his mother's womb, he shows us how to worship rightly. This is a savior worthy of our dance. This is a savior worthy of our song. As Mary goes on to show us in one of the greatest Christmas carols that's ever been recorded, if you pick up the story in verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. All right, Mary's posture, very similar to Elizabeth, is one of humble amazement and awesome wonder. It's a song of praise from a truly captivated soul. What is it that, that overwhelms her heart? What is it that causes her to sing? Perhaps join in the leaping for joy with John? And we know there are at least two answers to that question which deserve attention. For one, Mary's amazed that God would rescue her from her sins. Simply put, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, my savior, declares Mary. That, that yes, she responded to the promise of the angel a little more nobly than Zechariah, but this is not some game of just trying to be more noble than the person to your left or your right because you're left with the question of how good is good enough when you stand before the holy God. No, Mary, the very mother of Jesus herself too, sees herself as a sinner in need of a savior. She's just as desperate as anyone else for the Messiah who would inhabit her very womb. Right? We don't have to argue the sinlessness of Mary in order to establish the wonder-working power of God. We've already seen miracles in this story Luke is out to tell, and we're not even done with chapter one. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. That the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary was supernatural and miraculous so that Jesus could be born into this world fully human and yet without sin, our inability to fully grasp it or make sense of it, it doesn't diminish in the least God's power to accomplish it, to do it. 
Right? Mary declares her very own need for a savior. What a, what a mind-boggling thing to consider that Jesus would bear the sins of his very own mother someday. Right? Luke's doing the same thing he did back in the early part of chapter one where he reminded us that, that none of us ex, is exempt. In, in that sense, going back to Zechariah's story, that none of us is exempt from the daily fight to trust God's word, to trust God's promise. I mean, after all, Zechariah was a priest standing in the very temple of God, and he fell into unbelief, reminding us that even the most devout followers uh, and believers need not let down their guard when it comes to the temptation to trust the, the word of the Lord rather than question it. Here too, Luke declares that none of us is exempt, in this case, from our need for a, a savior, a rescuer from sin. I mean, if the Virgin Mary saw her own need for a savior, how could we possibly think that the story of Christmas is a story of self-rescue? No, this is, this is a wondrous, redemptive story of divine initiative. You and I, like Mary, simply recipients of God's grace and kindness in Jesus that Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to seek and save the lost, as Luke will go on to say, including his own mother, who, by the way, declares him both Lord, verse 46, and Savior. That Mary understood that you can't diverse the king from the rescuer, that Jesus is both a sufficient Savior and a worthy king. He doesn't just rescue people from their sins, but invites them to bow down in humble submission to his kingship. He's both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who was slain. What is it that, that overwhelms Mary's heart? What is it that causes her to sing? For one, that, that God would rescue her from her sins and bring her under the rule and reign of his perfect kingship. I think one of the questions we have to ask as we engage with this great Christmas carol is does it overwhelm our hearts? That our names are written in heaven. Jesus, when he was with the disciples, he said, don't marvel at all the things you can, you can do with the power that God gives. Marvel that your name is in the Lamb's book of life. Do we marvel at that? Are we overwhelmed by that? our minds, our hearts, that the child in the womb of Mary would go on to rescue us from our sins, you and me. In the words of one commentator, this perennial note of surprise is a mark of anyone who understands the essence of the gospel. Are you amazed this morning that you're a Christian, a recipient of God's grace? Right, Mary's spirit her whole being rejoices in God, her savior and king, that he would rescue her from her sins and establish her as a citizen of his good eternal kingdom. And then secondly, she stands amazed that God would leverage her life in bringing about the fulfillment of his redemptive promises. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Right? You, you have this relatively obscure, poor, uneducated, small town girl living in a shoddy city out of which seemingly nothing good comes, Nazareth, so that she humbly marvels at a God who would fulfill his promises through lowly people like her. She doesn't think that God owes her a seat at that table. She doesn't think she's great leadership material. No, she sees herself as humbled and lowly. And God says, I can use that to glorify myself. It's what God loves to do. Right? First Corinthians chapter one, Paul says it 
so clearly. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, Paul says, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right, Mary will go on to sing in this song of a God who brings down the mighty, verse 52, and exalts those of humble estate. In this case, choosing not only lowly Bethlehem to be the birthplace of the Messiah, but lowly Mary to be the resting place, the womb of the Messiah. And that also causes her heart to, to leap for joy and sing. And what a miracle that not only that God would save me from my sins, but that he would leverage my life, that he would spend me for his glory. And the truth is that that miracle is ours too. In the same way that it was for Mary, by no means, only one could bring the Messiah into the world. But Jesus surely brings about the promise, uh, the fulfillment of the promise to build his church through lowly people like you and me. So that I would, I would say it's a great shame that so often we, we look at God's kingdom work as a burden to begrudgingly make time for if time allows. Mary, I think, if she were here, would, would, would emphatically, all caps, multiple exclamation points say, by no means. Like, participation in, in God's kingdom work is an honor. It's a privilege. It's not just for pastors. It's one that, that none of us deserves. That, that if more people saw the world through the eyes of Mary, the church would not lack for servant leaders. I can assure you of that. Rather, the heartbeat of the church would be, I, I can't believe that God would spend me for his glory. I can't believe it. I can't believe that God would leverage my life in his great story of redemption. That I get to, I get to go tell the world of his power, verse 49, his might, the God who brings forth life from barren places, the God who rolls away the stone of human hearts, the God who raises the dead. I get to tell the world of his holiness, verse 49, the God who is without sin, the God who robes sinners in his righteousness. I get to tell the world of his mercy, verse 50, the God who doesn't give people what their sin deserves, having pity and compassion on lost sinners. Like we, we, get to, we get to participate in the kingdom work of this glorious, good, and gracious God. And, and that is a wondrous outworking of his grace just as much as anything else. Mary goes on to, to make clear that, that this is not just how God reacts and responds to her, but it's how God is, period. Verses 51 through 53, she says, he, God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary broadens the lyrics of this Christmas carol beyond her own experience of God, declaring that this is a God who, who is not just with lowly Mary, but he's with the lowly. 
Psalm 34, verse 18, one of the most encouraging verses in all the Bible, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's not good news for the proud, but it is for the humble. This is a God who brings down the mighty and exalts those of humble estate. This is a God who sends those with full bellies away empty, the self-sufficient, but rather fills those who come to him hungry with good things. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, can you not see that everything that man boasts in, his intellect, his understanding, his power, his social status, his influence, his righteousness, his morality, his ethics, his code, every one of those things, he says, is utterly demolished by this son of God. In the words of one commentator, if we would know the riches of God's mercy, we simply need to admit the poverty of our lives. Or as St. Augustine once put it very simply, for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second, and humility is the third. We need to hear that because it's a lesson that, that we can very easily in our minds grasp, but our hearts take years, maybe decades to grab hold of that one, that one sentence from, from one of the saints of old. It's surely a challenge in this world, which props up those with fame and riches to be envied and imitated. Right? It's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. We talk about it all the time around here. Luke puts it on display beautifully throughout this great story that he's out to tell. This is not the last time we're gonna see it. It's the rich man, Luke 16, who goes to hell while the poor man is carried away to paradise. It's the self-righteous Pharisee, Luke 18, whose prayers go unheard while the sinful tax collector is justified before God. And if that makes absolutely no sense, I invite you to please come back and engage this series to its end as we work our way through the book of, of Luke, start to finish. I shared this quote at the beginning of this series as we launched it. R.T. France in his commentary on Luke says, Luke's story is famous for its broad sympathy with the marginalized and the disadvantaged, the poor and the sick, the harassed and the demon-possessed, widows and bereaved parents, women and children, the social underworld of tax collectors and sinners, the Gentiles and even the Samaritans, to all in their different needs, Salvation, he says, and wholeness came through the ministry of Jesus who came to proclaim good news to the poor. And Luke took delight in using their stories to illustrate the revolutionary ideals of the Magnificat, of Mary's song, the dawning kingdom of God in which the last will be first and the first last. Right, Mary's song, this Christmas carol, it's the song of the gospel a song whose lyrics are gonna leap off the page in these months to come as we see them come to life in the, the ministry of Mary's coming son. It's a song of ultimate triumph through seeming weakness, the great reversal, the, the God of Christianity, a promise-keeping God who fulfills his promises to and through the lowly. Again, see it all over the pages of the Bible, right? God fulfilling his promises through the small, lowly nation of Israel, establishing a throne through the young shepherd boy David, preserving the messianic line through barren women and sons who are not the firstborn of the family. John Lennon once said, Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. 
It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. Meaning that Jesus' followers take away something of the luster from this message that the scriptures are out to proclaim. Right, Lennon missed it, though it was right in front of his face that God purposefully chooses the lowly in order to show himself mighty in weakness and worthy of worship. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger, whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high, whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. The God of Christianity is a promise-keeping God who fulfills his promises to and through the humble, through the lowly. And make no mistake about it, God always fulfills his promises. We've already seen this in Luke's gospel account, but Mary's gonna go on to declare it in the final lyrics of this song, verses 54 and 55. She says, he, the Lord, has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary was clearly familiar with the scriptures, though many would argue that Mary was not formally educated and uh, very likely did not own a copy of the scriptures for herself. She knew that, that the promises that God had made to Abraham were coming to pass in the coming of the one that, that she would know the privilege of bringing into this world. And it inspired her to sing her song revealing a deep knowledge of the scriptures, even deeper than just a knowledge of the patriarchs of old. Her song is, is eerily similar to Hannah's hymn of praise. If you go back and read 1 Samuel chapter two and, and match those songs up side by side, that Hannah was a woman who like Elizabeth was unable to conceive, looked down upon by other women on account of her barrenness. And the scriptures tell us that she prayed to the Lord in her distress and the Lord heard her prayer and gifted her with a son, Samuel. And like Mary, she, she couldn't help but sing in response to God's grace a song that Mary must have been incredibly familiar with, along with so much more of the Old Testament, as Mary's song either quotes, think about this, it either quotes from or alludes to passages from Genesis, Deuteronomy, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. I mean, she covers all the genres of the Old Testament with, with this Christmas carol. Clearly, this was a woman well-versed in the scriptures, so well-versed that when prompted to sing of God's kindness and grace in her life, the lyrics of her song flowed from the very pages of God's word. That's the kind of payoff that every Christ-adoring parent longs for, is it not, when pouring the scriptures into the lives and hearts of their young children. That, that Mary had learned from the song of Hannah that God hum humbles the proud and exalts the lowly something that she had now experienced in a very intimate, personal way. Her knowledge of the scriptures informing her trust in the Lord and his faithfulness to keep his promises. Promises going even further back than Abraham, all the way back to, to the one God made in a garden so very long ago to, to send a serpent-crushing hero to rescue his people from their sins. That's the story of Christmas, the story of God making good on that very first promise in Genesis 3, filling the hearts of his redeemed with a song. Philip Ryken 
says in his commentary, my wife's gonna love this one. He says, Luke included these lyrics because he understood that the gospel is and must be a musical. What God has done in Christ demands to be praised. It is not enough simply to say what God has done to save us. What he has done also needs to be celebrated in song. And if you look at John in his mother's womb, I think you could argue song and dance. It's a song that that sings of his praises and magnifies his name. He invites us into that. One that, that declares wonder of wonders that I'm a Christian, a recipient of God's grace, and I get invited into that, this great story to participate in his kingdom work, the honor and privilege of spending and being spent for the glory of this promise-keeping God. And so you might ask, well, what are we to do in light of a passage like this? I had a seminary professor, I was mentioning this on Wednesday evening during our Bible study principles and practices workshop, had a seminary professor who at one point along the way said, you know, there are numerous passages of scripture that that the application is simply marvel. And don't you dare call God's people to do more than that when that's the big takeaway. I would say that's the big takeaway of Mary's song. That we're meant to marvel and sing with our own voices and hearts and to leap for joy, to to respond with a fullness of heart to this God and his goodness, glory, and grace as we see it so beautifully in the Christmas story. Promises of God finding their fulfillment in the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. We get an opportunity to do that formally in these moments to come with our collective song as we sing in this space. I invite you to do that. I invite you to give God his due, to join in with the song of the church, the song of the angels, as we worship God collectively together through our song. Uh, there'll also be an opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, there are cups on the back table. If you miss them on the way in, you're welcome to go grab one of those during these last couple of songs Uh, And you can partake of those elements on your own time. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We don't have a formal moment where we all do that together. Rather, we wanna give space for the spirit of God to move in this place. We take the the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and we dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Just invite you to pause before you receive of those elements and and to uh, consider the wonder of a, of a coming Messiah who would die for the sins of his people, even his own mom, and for you and for me.